What's that sound, Mike? I don't know. What is it, Russ? I, I think I think I know. I don't know because I'm hiding under my desk. Is it the wind? Yeah, it could be. We're a little on edge here yeah. tonight because we've got a big typhoon coming through. Is it a big typhoon? It's it's a direct hit typhoon, which doesn't make me happy. It's a but, pretty um, big one. Uh, it's yeah. not super size, but it's number six as they yeah. go in Japan. They give them numbers instead of names, and it's taking a hook. And it's coming right our way. It's going to be here sometime tomorrow night into Tuesday. So right. been lucky so far. Not going to be fun. I haven't really experienced one of these in my, my new house at the, the base of a mountain here, as we, we oh. talk about the mountain lair all the time. <laughs> my house is really a mountain lair now. <laughs> it's kind of... So hopefully things will be fine there. There are a lot of trees and landslides that could happen. Ugh. So that'll be the excitement for the upcoming week. Other than that, it's been really hot every day yeah. with blaring sunshine. Right. And uh, it's a summer weather and summer music. And this week we've got some interesting picks. Next week's going to be some good summertime grooves, especially yeah. in jazz. And I should say, typhoons do mean a good listening time because you're in your house. You can't really go out during a typhoon. Although usually when there's a typhoon, you know, maybe four times out of five, it's kind of a false alarm. So it's just kind of cloudy and eerie out there. And you just go out and do whatever you're going to do. But if it's really wind blowing, you can't really do that. We'll just have to see what happens yep. this coming week. Anyway, if we have to stay inside, we've got lots of good music to listen to in this week's program. Also, yeah. lots of things coming up. Yeah, you can't really count on the news here about the typhoon either because they like to panic about everything. So you don't really <laughs> know, you know what's really going to happen. You don't know. Anyway, you're listening to the Adult Music Podcast, where we bring you music for the mature mind. Six selections every week, three classical and three jazz in the latest releases category, filtered through our uncommonly good taste filter <laughs> of recordings here. And for all the music that we're going to talk about tonight, you'll find in the episode description links to Spotify and Apple Music. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, yeah. streaming from France with CD quality. You can also get the podcast there. They have podcasts, get everything in one place. Now, if you don't see the full description or the recording list and links are jumbled up or not active on your app, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything is easy to follow. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow us or subscribe wherever you listen. Tell a friend if you got a music-loving friend that helps us get new listeners. If you take a moment also to give us a ranking or write a short review wherever you listen to us, that helps us get listed in the music category recommendations. It's another way we can get more listeners. We're on Facebook as well. we got a page over there. You can come over, get extra info, see our handsome faces, see our interaction with the artists. I put up new releases there in jazz as I find them. There's a bunch of good ones this week. If you need something else new to listen to, you can leave a message or a comment there. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any other comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Speaking of Facebook, I'll give a thanks to uh, Jalen Baker. We listened to his great vibes recording last week, Be Still, and he thanked us for talking about his album. So thanks yeah. for checking that out. Yeah, Jaylen. thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Another podcast uh, we'd like to recommend to you are our friends over at the Same Difference podcast, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. That's Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra's Standards jazz podcast they look at a different standard every episode that comes out twice a month and they play snippets from each version 
talk about the history of the original and the different versions and what they like and don't like. So you'll find a link to their podcast in the description as well. Also, at the end of the episode, there'll be a little promo from them. They'll tell you about what they do in their own words. And we're going to be getting together. We've got a date set up. We've got the content set up for our episode having those guys guest on our show and that'll right. be recorded this month and we'll get that out i think at the beginning of next month so we're looking forward to that you know the recording is going to be end of august i'm looking forward to that it's kind of feels like yeah. a summer sort of uh, event there's a meeting of the musical minds it's gonna be, be great fun. a little standard summit on yeah. the internet Ooh, that's a good title you should remember that oh yeah standard, standard summit, summit with same difference podcast that'd be cool yeah that'd be cool Let's see, we didn't have any deaths in classical music or jazz, but there's a couple of notable names this week. Yeah. The Sugar Man. The Sugar Man. Yeah. I think you better explain who he is. Sixto? Is that his name? Sixto Rodriguez? Sixto Rodriguez? I think yeah. so. Yeah. So he was, uh, well, <laughs> the subject of a documentary. It's really quite interesting if you haven't seen it. Searching for Sugar Man. And uh, he was kind of a folk musician. Where's he from? Detroit, was it? I didn't get it? my facts straight. I, I forgot. Don't remember. Mm, I don't anyway, remember. he was a folk musician whose music became loved and uh, well known in uh, South Africa. Yeah, and uh, he never knew about that. Yeah, <laughs> and they all thought he was dead at the time. And yeah. uh, so the documentaries about his music and that cultural phenomenon that went around that. So if you've never seen it, it's quite interesting. But uh, he passed away this week, and also uh, Robbie Robertson of yeah, the band of the band, what a major. Uh... Major name in uh, popular music of the 60s and rock folk music too, really. Right. And most of the music from the 60s, I, I would call adult music, the band. Yeah. yeah. The band was really good. Yeah. That, I mean, music of that era. Of course, we're I, either we're old now or music was better back then <laughs> as far as <laughs> well, pop music goes. Yeah. Well, there was music then aimed at younger people, but it was still pretty sophisticated. Yes. I don't know. All right. What do we got on the uh, classical roster for this week, Mike. Okay, well, this week we start... Oh, you have to play your uh, tune there. We have a special oh, right. theme for um, the music of Paul Renitsky. We have a, the latest release in the uh, Paul Renitsky uh, series from Naxos, so play that tune, Russ. All right, let's get up the hunting horns. Here we go. All right, yeah, this is uh, Volume 6, right? Orchestral We're Works? The volume 6, Orchestral Works 6. Yeah. And this is uh, good friends, the uh, Czech Chamber Philharmonic Orchestra Par de Bis, conducted by Marek Stilets. Yeah, and we want to give thanks to Daniel Bernardson, as always, for letting he gives us, us know. The scores. Yeah, he let he us know that this was coming up, and he got us the scores, too. So he's, thanks, he's, Daniel. He's quite, the, uh, quite a fan of the Renisky. He's, uh, he's a Renisky scholar. He's really, uh, boy, if he, were <laughs> if he were promoting our podcast, we'd be huge. Because he really does a lot of work to I promote Renitsky's music, you know? The biggest fan of Renitsky in the world, probably. Okay. Anyway, this is on the Naxos label. It's the sixth release on that label. And again, our good friend, Daniel Bernardson, wrote the notes to this release. And of course, his notes are always very informative, so yes. this is worth reading. Um, he reminds us that Renitsky was born in southern Moravia, which is now the Czech Republic, and he's, this is kind of important to know. It's, it's the Czech Republic, but it's, it wasn't the Czech Republic then. I mean, they were still what we right. would consider now to be Czech people, but you know, anyway, he was, um, part of this big sort of musical place that Haydn and Mozart were also, and Beethoven were also uh, involved in. He spent his uh, working life in Vienna, as did most of the great musicians of the era, uh, which was a musical capital at the time and was acquainted with Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven. They all knew him and he knew them. 
Anyway, on this program, we hear incidental music that Ranitsky wrote for plays given by the Viennese court theaters. Now, this isn't simply, and when we say incidental music, you think music that'll attach one theme to another, but that's mm. not the case here. These are actually full-on compositions. Um, right. They're mostly overtures. They're all substantial, too. Everything on here, it's, we're not really getting just some sort of passing music. These are all full compositions in themselves. All right, so the we, we get uh, music from three different uh, plays, and the first one, tracks one through four, is from Die Spanier in Peru, Oder Rolas Tod, which is The Spaniards in Peru, or The Death of Rola. Russ, does that sound like a, a play you'd like to see if it came out uh, tomorrow? Huh, maybe. Maybe I'm intrigued. Yeah, I wonder who's uh, starring as Pizarro today in those, <laughs> in those plays. Oh, man. They really liked these uh, sorts of... Um, you know, Europe conquering the world kind of uh, theater back then. Anyway, of course, uh, the first track, Act One, Overture. We always have to start with an overture. And this has the typical for the time, Largo introduction to Allegro Molto main section. This uh, opening track is engaging. Uh, it's as, as really is Renisky's music in general. It starts with a noble, masculine opening, followed by a soft wind line. So there's a little contrast there. And... The thing, now that I've heard so much of Renisky's music on these releases and a few others, um, I'm just always struck by the wind writing, which um, right. is often isolated in his scores. It really is almost his uh, fingerprint because no one else did it in that era. Anyway, the masked sound, I have to say, is uh, rather muddy on the recording. It's very bass heavy. So the tone doesn't really have space to, to bloom on the recording. It really felt like it was taking up the entire uh, speaker space. The pacing on this is rather slow. But the quieter sections are meltingly beautiful. Once the Allegro comes in, the movement gains energy. I feel like it's being held back a bit here. It's a little on the slower side. Okay, I always like it when the music really just starts to you know, gallop excitedly, and it feels like this music wants to do that. But the, the slower tempo does allow some of the beautiful string and wind writing in the second minute to register fully. We get to savor it. Although, okay, I would have preferred a quicker tempo. By now, we all know my preferences are for <laughs> quicker tempos. Anyway, at 328, there's a rather cool change of key transition into the development section. As I always love, Renitsky's writing for winds, and you can hear some nice interjections in the movement reaches its exciting ending. Track two is the Act Two Overture. Hey, he's written another overture for Act Two. This one starts allegro and then moves to andante moderato, a slower tempo. So this starts with a noble, breezy fanfare. This, I'm reading from uh, Daniel's notes here, opening the overture, and then the fanfare heralds the depiction of a battle. Okay, Daniel assures us in the notes that there is an outline of the famous La Folia chord sequence among the modulations, uh, which I'm not familiar enough with to be able to pull out, I'm afraid. Anyway, as the battle fades away, I guess I could have looked at the score and found it, but it would have taken some time. As the battle fades away, the movement segues into a gorgeous andante moderato featuring contratante writing for the solo cello. Okay, so this is an overture, a beginning, but we get the sense that it's another movement when programmed like this. So if you listen to the first track and then you listen to this one, it actually sounds like the, because it, it starts allegro, but it kind of sounds like the next movement of a bigger hmm. symphonic work, the way it's programmed here. Um, the program uh, sort of underlines the fact that the model for the multi-movement symphonic works was the theater, um, particularly the operatic theater, which is not the case here. This is not an operatic theater piece. But theater is really what inspired these multi-movement classical music works to be laid out the way they are. 
At 102, we hear fanfares. These reassuring fanfares are followed by falling tones in the second minute. The andante begins at around the 310 mark, and the melodies are spelled out by strings again, a bit on the slow side. It's got a nice flow to it, though, which is fine, and I like the ticking motive at the beginning in the low strings that turns into a repeated note pulse as the melody goes on. Track three is Act Two, Scene One, Marcha. That's a march. It's optimistic and resumes the military mood. Uh, there's even a symbol in there providing accents. When you hear a symbol, I think of um, Turkish music. This is what they used to do in the in the classical era because the uh, the the Ottoman armies would always have, I guess, these sorts of bands with a lot of symbols or something. That's what um, Janissary, right? Is Janissary, right? You hear a lot of that in in Mozart's music too. I'm sure in a lot of other composers of the era. Uh, it's cheerful and rather repetitive, and with the clanging cymbals and triangle, yeah, it reminds me of the uh, the Janissary armies. We'll hear more of that later in a theater piece that actually is about the Turks. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. anyway, it's an appealing interlude in the theater. It's kind of odd, though, because this is taking place in South America, this right. particular one. Anyway, Act 4, Overture, Allegro con fuoco, Andante sostenuto, Tempo 1, there are a lot of uh, markings here. Oh, by the way, there is a third act overture in this set, um, but it was reused by Ranitsky in his Symphony in C Major, Opus 33, Number 2, which we heard on Volume 3 of this Ranitsky series right. of recordings, which is actually one of my favorites. Uh, that and Volume 4 are the two I like the best. So if you're new to this set, I'd go there first. So anyway, that um, particular movement is not used here as a result, but we do hear the Act 4 overture, uh, starting with a stormy allegro con fuoco in the minor key, which gives way to a languid andante sostenuto featuring a duet between solo clarinet and bassoon. Again, these are Daniel's words. The opening material then returns in the major key, and the music transitions into stage action at the raising of the curtain. There's a fifth act overture also that hasn't been included since it doubles as the slow movement of a symphony that Daniel wants to present l on a later volume of this series. So we... The fifth movement one we haven't heard yet. Anyway, in this particular track four overture, act four overture, the opening has a rushing, anxious quality to it. And the tempo is uh, really nice and flowing here. I like it. At the 35 second mark, a violin comes in with a winding solo line that leads to the andante sostenuto at around 54 seconds. In the first minute, we hear a clarinet, still a relatively new and unusual instrument at the time. So I imagine this must have delighted listeners back in the day. We're too, we're too familiar with the clarinet now, you know, but then it was like a new sound, you know. Anyway, the bassoon answers at 135, and they engage in dialogue into the second minute. At the four-minute mark, brass come in along the rest of the orchestra, along with the rest of the orchestra, to bring more excitement to the music, and we're now in the allegro, as it heads for a cadence at 458. Now... That's not the end. A new section begins with a dark minor key to it, but the orchestra quickly breaks out of that and gets a sprightlier line. Notice the orchestration on the way to the final cadence. There are a few enjoyable surprises with the winds and the change of rhythm. The piece unexpectedly ends on a quiet final cadence taken by the strings. All right, moving on to our next theater piece, tracks five through nine, Yolanta, Königin von Jerusalem. Yolanda, Queen of Jerusalem, and this was from 1797. The play involves a young queen's rivaling suitors, an attacking Muslim army, 
and the election of a new Grandmaster of the Knights Templar. Wow. Sounds like a real uh, production. (laughs) It's a lot of material to get in there. Anyway, Trek 5, Act 1, Overture, begins slow on Dante and goes to Allegro non troppo. All right, so Daniel informs us that the Knights Templar had dual religious and military duties, and these are embodied in this overture. The opening on Dante is polyphonic. It might remind you of uh, church music, maybe from the Renaissance era, and leads to an allegro that juxtaposes marching themes, choral passages, chorale passages, I guess we should say there. What it it means is the religious kind of chord type things Mm -hmm. you'd sing in church and dramatically scurrying strings into an unexpected but satisfying hole. Anyway, this movement starts out elegantly in its polyphonic style. Then there's a fanfare at 30 seconds invoking the military, evoking the military. By 150, we're into a quieter searching section, then back to a build-up to a cadence in the second minute that is left as an open cadence at around 250. Quieter, pleasant material is heard, then the martial fanfare music again. So the... uh. We're hearing the, that Knights Templar in all of their uh, guises in this um, <laughs> track. The themes switch often from one section to the other and do indeed form a whole, uh, as Daniel promises. Uh, there's a rousing final cadence, too. There's an overture for Act 2 as well. That's track 6, and it's marked Presto. Features fanfares and dueling snare drums. This is another <laughs> unusual element for the time. We didn't really hear much like snare drum type percussion in music until the 20th century, really. It just was left out. Um, This overture depicts an offstage battle between the Knights Templar and Muslim forces outside the gates of Jerusalem. And the opening has an interesting uh, quarter note lead up to a dotted rhythm, which is really just, uh, it's not really a dotted rhythm, it's the second quarter note left out. There's like a pause. We get some martial fanfares. I actually didn't check the score. I'm really going by my ear there. I I hope that's right. Anyway, we get some martial fanfares, the snare drums are a new sound, and the rolling strings depict unresolved turmoil. I should mention that the sound quality is much cleaner on this track. I'm guessing the snare drums occupying the high end are responsible for that, as they accentuate the high end. So I think we're getting more balance because of the uh, orchestration here in this particular recording. Up to now, the recording has been very bottom-heavy. Uh, Stilich here gets a pretty intense lead-up to the final cadence, which is interrupted by a quieter flowing section that actually leads to the end of the movement, which is another surprise. You'll have to listen to hear it. Track 7 is an Act 2 Trauermarsch, which is a funeral march. Um, The curtain rises, and this funeral march pays tribute to the victims of the battle. Arininitsky gets a darker, muted timbre here by not using violins and dividing the lower strings. The funeral march is nice. It has some pattering drum off on the side, which caught my ear for its oddness. The winds play a big role in the melodizing in this movement, which by now I hear is a key part of Ranitsky's orchestral sound, as I mentioned. At 155, there's a contrasting middle section where the strings carry the theme lightly. The section leads to the end of the movement. Track 8, Act 3, Overture. Andante con moto, moving to Adagio, and then back to... This has a fugal opening, followed by a serene adagio with lyrical solo writing for the oboe, clarinet, and bassoon. Uh, The fugal quality of the opening is a little odd and ear-grabbing for that reason. It's the angularity of the melodic lines that really stands out for me. 
Uh, they smooth out as the polyphonic material unfolds, and there are some grand statements in the full orchestra at points. There's a sudden change in the minor at the beginning of the second minute, after which the adagio starts, opened by the oboe. It's a total character change for the movement, and the uh, oboe's melody is touching. The clarinet eventually answers, and we hear the bassoon providing bass line commentary as it plays. At 3.15, the oboe is back in the lead, and finally at 3.23, the bassoon is up front. I like the light plucking accompaniment from the strings just after the beginning of the third minute. The grand opening repeats at around 5.50, and the music suddenly speeds up at the end for an uplifting approach to the final cadence. Track 9, we then get an Act 4 overture. Adagio to Allegro Giusto, pretty traditional. And um, Daniel calls this a tranquil hymnal adagio leading to an increasingly energetic Allegro Giusto featuring fugal passages. So the opening is all string chords. A rhythm is established by a pulsing repeated chord every so often between more sustained lines. The Allegro Giusto has some polyphonic passages in it that suddenly give way to more traditionally thematic music. There's a cadence led by a nice either oboe or English horn trill at 3.30. Then the music continues on into more disturbed harmony until it suddenly and surprisingly resolves to a cadence around 4.10 with a brief uplifting phrase ending the movement just afterwards. Okay, then we have our third and final theater piece, Ahmet und Zenid. Okay, Ahmet and mm -hmm. Zenid. <laughs> it's 1796. Now, this play is set at the governor's palace in a Turkish province, and it involves the love triangle between the Pasha, his favorite concubine, and a European visitor. There's always <laughs> that, that pesky European visitor has always got to show up in these, in these theater pieces. And the story deals with ambition, deceit, and eventual redemption. But we're not concerned too much with that here. <laughs> anyway, track 10. What we're concerned with is the fact that this is kind of taking place in Turkey is going to have a lot of Janissary Army symbols and sort of chiming percussion instruments. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering what that is, Beethoven uses it in his Ninth Symphony in the, um, the march in the fourth movement. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's the most famous use of uh, the... Um, the Janissary sort of army march sort of thing. And it's a march, that particular part of the movement. Anyway, back to Ranitsky. Sorry to go off on that um, tangent there. <laughs> but the, the first overture, and uh, Daniel writes, the first act overture establishes the exotic locale. Again, this is track 10. This overture is a prime example of the popular Turkish style. The orchestra is extended with piccolo and Janissary percussion instruments, triangle, cymbals, and bass drum. And I thought this movement starts out rather cheekily, like a Mozart overture. Stilettes has that measured rhythm going in the strings. There are some lovely flute chirpings in the theme heard at the end of the first minute and leading to the cadence at 2.44. The music actually continues after that with some constant appoggiaturas and lots of cymbal crashing, thankfully kept in the background. There are some nice orchestral textures in the third minute, at 3.46, the opening melody is heard again, and a little quicker and more urgent this time. It's really flowing now, and I'm enjoying the speed and flow of the fourth minute. The lovely second theme with the chirping flutes is heard again at 4.42, and the piece comes to an emphatic ending after this. Track 11 is the Act 2 Overture, which is uh, labeled as a capriccio, which means uh, really anything goes. 
So if you get a capriccioso mm. pizza, it means, hey, whatever <laughs> I want is on it. That's basically right. what it means. <laughs> anyway, this is Mark Allegro Non Troppo. And it presents and combines sections of contrasting character. The opening is rather blocky in its rhythm, but then starts flowing when the rest of the orchestra comes in. Um, these two contrasting sections are interspersed throughout the movement. It's got a lovely ending with the flute playing a prominent role. And again, yeah, I love the way Renitsky uses the winds, and you get to hear that at the end of this movement. Track 12 is Act 3 Overture. There's a lot of overtures in this uh, piece. It's got an anguished opening. Oh, this might be the love triangle. I really don't know what happens in the theater piece. <laughs> but there's a middle section with wind solos, and the overture ends jubilantly in Turkish style. The opening, in fact, sounds a bit anxious, rushing here and there, as though imitating the movements of a character. You can sort of imagine this person scurrying here and there on the stage, wondering what to do. The rushing music lasts until a cadence at 2.42. There's a loud chord, and then some chords and lines playing by winds. At 3.20, a new section starts with cymbal clashes and triumphant feelings. Track 13 is the Act 4 Overture, which has uh, three parts, an adagio, an allegro, and then back to the adagio. Wind solos frame the allegro in this overture. A flowing, slow opening provides some welcome contrast to all of the faster music we've heard in this theater piece. Winds carry the melody, and they have a section to themselves at the 53-second mark that really catches the ear for its orchestration. Stilets gives this movement a nice lift. A new section starts at 138, rather teasing in its melodic shape. At 254, the opening adagio melody returns. Track 14 is the Act 4 March. This is a uh, Janissary March, and we're hearing the Turks here. You can hear the triangle ringing as the martial rhythm moves on. And for the quiet section, uh, Stilets is measured. The movement moves a bit slowly. And finally, track 15, Act 5 Overture. Allegro Molto, and it uses the Janissary instruments again. This overture is in sonata form. It's got a rushing opening theme, and it's Mozartian in its teasing, cheerful quality. At 2.17, the mood changes, and we hear a sort of waltzing, sweeping melody. Tempo picks up, and by 3.50, we're back to the rushing, cheerful opening theme. Again, listen to the lovely staccato descending wind patterns when they appear. At 4.38, the winds alone have the material. Strings take over afterwards, and we begin an approach to the end, and the ending itself is very triumphant. Okay, so Radisky's music is consistently enjoyable, as we've heard really throughout this series and on a few mm -hmm. other recordings as well. Um, and this release attests to that as well. A good deal of the music on this album feels celebratory and cheerful, with some beautiful, thoughtful-sounding slow movements, or sections occasionally appearing. Though the music is written for the theater, what we're given are full overtures, which are substantial pieces of music in themselves. Marek Stilek's approach varies. Sometimes he'll allow the music to flow. Sometimes he'll give it sort of a, a, a slower, sort of more exact rhythm. I personally like the more flowing style in this music. And the recording is a bit muddy, especially in the first um, piece. It sort of opens up a bit in the second from track five. With lots of bass end, and too little high-end, again, except in tracks 5 through 9. Though at times, that high-end comes through beautifully. I'd say if you're new to this composer, start at volumes 3 or 4 in this series. And if you're already hooked like we are, you'll have to hear this too. It doesn't disappoint. It's a pretty uplifting program, in fact. Enjoyable as always, I thought as well. 
these kind of theater pieces are actually quite sophisticated works, and they have a lot of the charming elements that are also in Ranitsky's symphonies. So I found them enjoyable and picking up elements, particularly this great woodwind writing, the clarinet, as you said. I love that staccato bassoon line uh, coming <laughs> yeah. towards the end. And, you know, lots of changes as the pieces go along and the kind of little tricky things that make you smile in all of Ranitsky's works. So, yeah, I thought it was uh, enjoyable, less episodic and more meaty than I thought it would be, you know, when I first read the descriptions of it. And, yeah, this is really interesting, especially the themes and to imagine <laughs> the stage kind of uh, dramas that were going on around right. these and how the music fits to them. So I found it enjoyable. It drew me into the music and looking for all those things I've already come to expect and enjoy about Ranitsky. But I want to hear more symphonies. We know he wrote, what, 45 symphonies or something? We've oh, only heard a so few. Many. So <laughs> I really hope we get some more of those coming out in the near future. You know, according to the booklet notes, we're going to get one. Yeah, pretty. I don't know if it'll be the next one, but it'll. He's he's planning to. Yeah, uh, hmm. you know, Dan says he's planning to have like a symphony on an on another right. upcoming. Yeah, so recording. So, so, yeah, to that. I like those kind of substantial works too, because I feel like they're kind of they're the big statement, the biggest statement right. the composer can make without writing an opera. You know, so it's right. the big instrumental statement. So, Mark, you <laughs> keep recording these and. Daniel's yeah. keep letting us know, and we'll keep listening. Yeah, and, we'll keep uh, listening. including them. So, all right. So, our second um, classical album for this week is uh, by Antonin Dvorak, String Quartet Number no. Thirteen in G Major, Opus One Hundred Six, and paired with um, Samuel Coleridge Taylor's Five Fantasy Stück, Opus Five, and this is played by the Torkach Quartet, maybe the finest quartet out there right now. Um, they've been around for a while, and they've changed members quite a few times. Um, they've got a new consistent lineup now. And this is on the uh, Hyperion label. And guess what? You can hear this online now if you yeah, want to, because right. Hyperion records are now available for streaming. Amazing. I'm happy about that, because there are a lot of great Hyperion releases. There are loads of really good ones coming up in September and October, but they're all double albums. I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk about them, but we'll see. They're, you know, they're, they're kind of mm -hmm. long. We'll see what happens. Anyway, Tolkach Quartet, always a treat to hear a new recording from them. It's interesting to me that Tolkach paired these two composers, and one wonders why it hasn't been done more often. Coleridge Taylor was an English composer who was the son of an immigrant from Sierra Leone, and he was inspired by Dvorak in his use of folk and ethnic melodic material, mm. though the piece we hear here is more in his conservative style. Now, the other thing is the Dvorak piece doesn't really have much of this folk and ethnic music either. It's got some, but uh, it's, a, it's a really sophisticated piece. And that one came after the very, very famous American Quartet, which was uh, Dvorak's 12th string quartet. Uh, which everybody out there should know, by the way. If you haven't heard it, you should listen to that one, too. Anyway, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Five Fantasy Stuck, Opus 5, from 1895. Both of these pieces, the Coleridge-Taylor and the Dvorak, were written in 1895. First uh, movement of these five pieces is a prelude, Allegro Manon Troppo. This starts with a droning open fifth in the cello, and the moment you hear that, that's telling you this is folk music. This is music of the land, okay, because it's got that droning uh, melody, almost like it's kind of like a 
bagpipe or musette or something like that. The melody is catchy that goes on top of that, and I rather like the changing profile of the accompanying strings. The Tokach is in great form on this album, letting the melodies ebb and flow like swelling water, even letting their crescendos and decrescendos flow. Um, they have a rich tone, and the recording is excellent and transparent. This work is highly melodic, and the Tokach give it an appealing glow and a lovely hush at 149 and afterwards. The opening repeats after the third minute, and the piece ends on a sensitively taken final unison line, leading to the quiet final chord brushed out of the instruments twice. Okay, so I was pretty thrilled um, at this because I remember we heard like a Mendelssohn recording that was like two recordings of them ago that we didn't like so mm. much when they had just changed a member of the ensemble and it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was quite together yet. Anyway, now they're in very fine form throughout this recording. Track two, Serenade, Andante Molto. This has a sensitive hush tone. It's slightly muted. It's an appealing and melodic and not really a catchy piece. It's more atmospheric in its melodies. I'm really drawn to the ensemble playing here. The quartet sounds like a solid unit again, as they did on their previous album, too. The Mendelssohn one was two albums ago. It's nice to hear such perfect nuance playing from them again. And uh, lovely. this is a lovely dusky piece. The third track, Humoresque, Presto. It's a contrasting piece, it's lively, and the Tokach sort of mute the rhythm, making us just feel it in the downbeats. The playing is very subtle, and this is really setting us up for the Dvorak uh, string quartet, which I'll get to when we're, when we're there. There's a middle section to this opening at 52 seconds, where all the voices get a line in by themselves. Then we hear the opening material again. At 1.30, there's a proper middle section for the movement, which is slower and played in contrasting legato lines. It's quick, and at 2.12, the opening is back. This time, notice that it's played more quietly and uh, possibly muted, too. This is subtle playing indeed, where repeated material is not quite a straightforward repeat. Though by the end, the dynamic is back to that of the first time we heard the cadence. Track four, Minuet and Trio, Allegro Moderato. This is played at a bit of a quick tempo, and it works well, pulling out the curvy endings of phrases and making them sound more melodic than decorative. There's a lovely cadence at 125, followed by a climbing unison line, which is answered by harmonized, softer legato material. At 237, the opening material is repeated, but again, the Tokach changed the sound to give it more of a vibrato-less tone. This adjusts again as the section goes on. I'm enjoying this more for the performance than the music, to be honest, though the music is immediately appealing. And finally, the fifth um, Stück, or piece, is a dance marked Vivace. It starts out rustically, as did the opening piece in this set, with an open fifth in the cello. Uh, the melodic lines start scurrying, and the Torkach plays this busy material with a gorgeous sheen and a lot of subtlety of timbre and bowing and constantly beautiful tone. I guess it could be played more aggressively, and I would like it that way, but this approach is beguiling. The opening repeats, and we reach a solid final cadence, still subtle in attack and tone, despite its quick speed. Okay, tracks 6 through 9 are Antonin Dvorak's String Quartet, number 13 in G major, opus 106, written in 1895. So this is the work that Dvorak wrote after the famous F major American String Quartet, opus 96, his String Quartet, number 12. 
He wrote most of it when he returned from the U.S. to Prague, and it shows none of the American-type themes of the previous quartet. It's like a complete change, really. Oh, by the way, this is track 13, and uh, this is string quartet number 13, opus 106, and quartet number 14 is opus 105, and if you're wondering why that's the case, <laughs> he completed quartet number 14 after this one, so they're numbered in the correct order, but they were published. Okay in reverse order opus means the publication date it does not mean the order that the pieces were written in but it usually follows the, that because obviously right. if you write something you're going to want to publish it but he i think he submitted these two at the same time and they just got published as 105 and 106 in that order the scholars and not the publishers got the order right here all right so this piece i gotta tell you this is a pretty intellectual piece. It's a little demanding, though it's very melodic. There's, there's mm. sugar in it, you know. But um, we've got a pretty intellectual piece with a lot of material. And we're hearing very subtle playing as well. So there's a lot of unpacking to do if you want to hear this um, this work. I mean, you could sit back and enjoy it. But um, it won't. you won't really get it right away, I think, unless you're familiar with it already. Um, it takes a few listens, especially with a performance as subtle as this. I had mentioned that in the Coleridge-Taylor that when the um, Tokash Quartet takes a repeat, they don't really take it quite the same way mm. as they did in the beginning, like when the theme returns. Well, here, Dvorak writes his recapitulation to his sonata in the first movement with different sort of orchestration, I guess you could say, and the Tokach plays it with a different feel than they did at the opening. So it's kind of hard to identify that, oh, this is the, um, are we still in developing the material or is this... Uh, a recapitulation. So it really takes like a quick ear to, or solid ear to hear this. Actually, it takes a few listens, really, if you're not familiar with the work. Anyway, it's a big work. And the uh, first movement, track six, is marked Allegro Moderato. It begins with a light dancing step, the theme ending with a light curling line, followed by a momentary chaotic texture. Now, when you hear this, you know it's going to be sort of developed in some way. And you know you're going to have some kind of chaos or hard-to-follow sort of uh, material coming. There's lots of contrast in that opening. At the 39th second mark, a new section already begins. This new theme has some contrast, too, with dark tones at the beginning, followed by high, light-hearted sounds. There's some melodic material that follows, and a key change at about 120, which is really very early in the work. Mm. At 142, there's a shy theme. Uh, Dvorak spins out appealing melody after appealing melody, as was his gift. Um, this is all beautifully shaped by the Tokach, again, with a lot of subtlety of dynamic, of tone, of and just the texture of the, the bow on the string. Their transitions into the Quicksilver new sections are as subtle as possible, given the sudden juxtaposition of contrasting sections. This really doesn't sound like an easy work to put across. I'll have to hear some other recordings of it to see what other quartets have done. At 348, we reach a cadence. Uh, then there's a brief coda leading to a minor key at around 355, and we're straight into the development section, which is urgent, with even quicker changes than we heard in the exposition, as is should be expected. At 4.50, the quartet manages a raucous sound that suddenly tapers off into something more penitent at 5.10. At 5.26, we're hearing the opening material again, but shyer and more ghostly sounding. 
It turns out this is not the recapitulation yet. The music veers off into quick chord changes and finds the recapitulation again at 629, or the opening theme at 629, but it's reorchestrated here too, with new accompaniment. It's a really beautifully paced performance by the Tokach. There are new searching chords um, suddenly coming out again at the seventh minute, leading to the second theme repeat at 737, now in the cello. So it's been reorchestrated again. There's a coda at the end, changing keys to get to the final cadence. There's a false cadence at 906. This is really a tonally teasing moment and may be hard to follow, given that everything isn't repeated with the same orchestration as is so often the case in these kinds of works. It's a movement and a performance that will definitely repay repeated listening. There's a lot going on, not only in the writing, but in the playing as well. The second movement, the slow movement, Adagio ma non troppo, starts with each instrument coming in individually to play long bowed chords. There's a droning open fifth bass over which the very Adagio melody plays in the upper strings. Okay, we got that droning bass, we're in the countryside, we want to really place ourselves there. The cadence at 120 is strongly felt. After this, the melody goes in a new direction with lovely atmospheric double note pizzicati adding perspective. At 2.51, a more rhythmic section begins with a lighter melody. The sound of the higher harmonized string theme near the end of the fourth minute is particularly lovely. There's an emphatic statement of the harmonized melody in the sixth minute that comes across beautifully, as does the contrasting section that follows immediately in the seventh minute. At 7.22, we hear familiar material again, played with a hush in the entire ensemble. The movement ends with hints of the American material we heard in Dvorak's previous quartet. Not the same material, but kind of more pentatonic in sound. It's, it's almost comes as a surprise. It doesn't really stand out, but it's sort of um, a little departure from what we've been hearing. The third movement is molto vivace. This would be the scherzo movement. It's got a bouncing melody, taken a bit slowly here, but with full accents on the downbeats. The contrast with the previous movement comes more with the sound than with the tempo, though of course it's faster. The middle section starts at 108 and is much quieter, the sound almost brushed out of the quartet. The opening repeats, then at 248 a new section begins, more marked rhythmically than the last quiet section. It sort of flutters along. When the opening theme comes back, it's first played a bit more subtly in rhythm, but we hear it in full rhythm and at a piano dynamic at 532. Piano dynamic means it's soft. I mean, piano like pianissimo. It then leaps to forte for its prolonged approach to the end of the movement. The finale, movement four, track nine, marked andante sostenuto to allegro con fuoco, starts almost as though it's a slow movement, but then suddenly speeds up into its main theme. By 105, we're hearing some middle European spice in the theme, along with some accented rhythmic patterns. At 152, there's a particularly pretty and charming pizzicato section that acts as a cadence and a gateway to the next section, starting in the second minute. It's more melodic and legato. In the fourth minute, there's a heavily sustained thick texture, followed by quieter modal sounding material in the fifth minute. It's got an ancient quality to it, accompanied as it is by droning open fifths in the cello. At around 7.50, there's a new section with quick changing tempos and accompaniment to the theme. In the ninth minute, as the end is approached, there's a gradual heightening of tension as the key changes with each iteration of the melodic material. 
This tension starts being dissolved toward the beginning of the 10th minute. There, a speeding up that leads to a subtly taken but satisfying ending. At 3.56, there's a striking change to a softer dynamic. And at 5.24, we hear the opening again, which brings the piece to a tranquil end. Here we do get a bit of dessert at the end. Uh, track 10, Dvorak, Andante Appassionato, B40A from 1873. This is from the original version of Dvorak's string quartet in A minor, Opus 12. It's a movement that he replaced with another movement. Anyway, this discarded movement from Dvorak's sixth string quartet is incomplete also. So I guess he didn't like it as he was writing it. And the quartet completed it with a repeat of the opening. The movement is fairly brief at six minutes, and the accompaniment is simply bowed quarter note chords as the upper strings play the melody. Cascading figures follow. Uh, this is a much lighter piece than the quartet we just heard. <laughs> Needless to say, it's earlier. It's mostly melodic, with the melody being handed to different voices and a Siciliano rhythm starting just before 150. It breaks up and is reconstituted as the music goes on. Okay, so we're back to peak subtlety from the Tokach Quartet in the opening Coleridge Taylor pieces, as well as in the more complex Dvorak Quartet. In fact, the performance of the Dvorak is such that it invites repeated listens. Dvorak can be big-hearted and inviting, as we know from his New World Symphony and his 12th String Quartet, but this one, despite its lovely melodies, requires some work to unravel. The performance helps with that a lot, but the quartet here invites us to explore with them via their interpretation. They draw the contrasts expertly, inviting us to listen more closely to what's happening. So they're not really underlining things for us, making it easier. They're kind of exploring and they want us to kind of take this sort of intellectual ride with them. It's a work that invites a variety of interpretations, and the one the Tokach has chosen here is one of a kind, I think. It's got beautiful sound from the ensemble and the engineer, lots of space and transparency to the recording. Yeah, it's a great sounding recording, and they have that glowing string tone that just is very unique. And only the best quartets have that, too. It's really yeah, special. The instruments blend so well, and they get that signature sound. As you say, it reminds me, they're pretty much on that same tone from their older recordings that I know. And I thought this pairing as a program worked pretty interestingly. The Coleridge-Taylor, I enjoyed. It has a lyrical sparseness to it, and mm -hmm. that nature allows you to follow the lines of the music, which are very interesting in the way the instruments overlap and then also move independently. And I found it kind of uh, calming and serene in, in places, and I, I enjoyed it very much. But the Dvorak performance is really outstanding. Yeah. There's so much going on here with rhythmic changes, wonderful lyrical passages that are just phrased and interpreted so well. And it also incorporates lots of different techniques of the stringed instruments. And sometimes you're really startled by the different things they're doing all so smoothly. It's a real balance of beauty and excitement all in one work. And like I say, you're going to listen to this probably multiple times. But I right. thought it was just stunning, both in the sound quality and the technical performance, but also the just smoothness of the phrasing and interpretation. So, you know, really wonderful string quartet. Yeah, this is, this is a pretty special recording, I'd say. I'd say it's, uh, it's one to hear. And it's one for um, 
the more seasoned uh, classical music listener, I'd say. I mean, anybody will enjoy it, but um, mm. it's one that like the more intellectually minded listeners will really enjoy because it's got a lot of uh, yeah interesting interpretations right, of the score. Yeah, that right balance between emotionalism and sort of intellectual qualities. Mm-hmm. It's just right. It hits that sweet spot, I think. Right. Okay, our final classical recording of the night. I always try to get a contemporary composer on, and this is one we've covered before and that we rather liked. Hmm. So I thought I'd uh, try a new album by him. This is a Sebastian Fagerlund. His works um Terral, or Terrell, Strings to the Bones, and Chamber Symphony. So three works. And uh, the first work, uh, Terral, is uh, a flute concerto, and that features the great Sharon Bezali on flute. The rest of the works and the flute concerto are played by the Tapiola Sinfonietta, conducted by John Storgards. And this is released by Bees, and it's an SACD too. So they're really doing a Fagerlund's mm. music proud. They've actually released quite a few uh, albums of his music, and it's really great to see contemporary composers um, being served this way. We need to do this more in America. Um, we yeah. do know that um, <laughs> we we do have some labels that are, you know, covering a lot of uh, music by American composers, but uh, we have a lot of music there that needs to, you know, multiple recordings. Mm. And it was good to see the Beast label doing this, supporting their own here. They're they're in Sweden, by the way. Okay, so tracks one to three are Terral. Terral. I don't know how to say this, but anyway, there it is. T-E-R-R-A-L. Could be Terral. It's a flute concerto, and it was composed 2020 to 2021. So the title of Fagerlund's concertos almost always refer to the atmosphere and the sound world of the works, rather than being specifically programmatic or descriptive. So you're getting more of a feeling of what the work is Mm. going to sound like from the title. So Debussy was a bit like that, too. It wasn't programmatic, you know, his titles, but they did kind of give you a little bit of a picture. He's he's going more for atmosphere here. For Terrell, he says the title brings to mind the earth and the ground. So terra, earth. Okay. But it's also a land breeze, which is called uh, terral in Spain. Uh, The images he was thinking of were things like soil or sand taking on a new appearance when blown by the wind. So think Etch-A-Sketch, I guess. You know, just something (laughs) that's kind of, it's just not like steady. It's not solid it's just going to keep dissolving and changing into something else and that's actually a pretty good description of what we're going to hear it's about constant variation sometimes the texture produces longer lines sometimes we find ourselves amid wild whirlwinds in fact the whole sound of the work is transparent and windy as one might expect from a work about wind so the first movement is marked lento libramente un poco now, initially, the soloist, Sharon Bazali, uses a low-pitched alto flute, and then she changes um, right. to the regular flute. Um, the strings play a long canonic line. Canon means they're going to be repeating each other's lines a measure apart, prob- you know, most likely. This um, canon uh, contains the DNA of the concerto's material and also anticipates the main theme of the third movement, the middle of the movement is faster and anticipates the second movement. So this movement is setting us up for everything else we're going to hear in the next two movements. So this piece opens with the strings rushing, and we immediately hear the alto flute. It sounds like there are a few uh, quarter tones in there, too, as the pitch wavers. It's an attractive opening and a colorful, initially static sound world. In the first minute, 
we begin hearing rising and falling themes in individual instruments in the orchestra as the flute continues to pick up some of those figures as it plays its own slow melody. There's some really pretty low brass in the third minute, playing sustained note tones and chords when they're together. This is a subtly scored movement. There's a lot of exquisite detail happening in the background of any melodic material, and I recommend you hear this on a very good stereo and in a very ver good recording, like SACD quality, perhaps. At 4.45, we're hearing strings in the forefront, playing the canonic line and adding warmth to the score. The fluttering high, now regular, flute comes in at the 6 minute and 12 second mark, and here we can fully experience Sharon Bazali's exquisitely beautiful tone and a bit of her athletic virtuosity as well. She's accompanied by intriguing orchestral timbres, some static, some actively melodizing. There's some impressively quick repeated notes on the flute in the seventh minute. Even in her, in her high end, listen at 728, Bezali manages to tame her tone so that it's not piercing. Amazing. As we approach the eighth minute, the music calms and we're hearing the flute play the opening theme again. I assume this time on the regular flute. The music remains rather static to the end with the focus on the flute's sustained tones and they are beautiful. Now I should say, the music, it isn't really melodic, but there are certain little kind of melodic um, or thematic mm. sort of like fragments to hold on to. I mean, you can recognize them when they're repeated, but you know, certainly nothing that you can sing in this movement or in this piece really, or on this album. <laughs> the second movement is marked Presto Veloce, and the notes tell us it's flamboyant, full of lively dialogue between the soloist and orchestra. It's brief at 4 minutes and 23 seconds and starts with a contrasting, lively rhythm, with the flute playing a lot of bird-chirp-like repeated notes at the beginning of its lines, which the orchestral solo instruments repeat, uh, the rest of the orchestra playing swirling glissandos. The flute gets some acrobatic lines right in the first minute, and the orchestra sort of takes over as the first minute plays on, with the flute moving to the background until the two-minute mark when its acrobatics come back. There are some lovely, chiming, music box-like percussion effects mimicking it, and towards the end, at around 326, the texture lightens and becomes more transparent as the flute plays sustained tones as the orchestra ticks out a steady rhythm that nevertheless remains atmospheric. The rhythm doesn't drive the piece, in other words, is what I'm saying. Um, a sustained flute tone directly to the next movement. When I say that, I mean the ticking rhythm doesn't drive the piece. There mm -hmm. is a rhythm to the piece, but it's sort of, you can't really catch it. It's not, there's no real beat, okay, to the music. Anyway, the third movement, Espansivo and Sonore. Um, there's no break between this and the, uh, between the second movement and this final movement. The previous elements of the work are combined and are further complemented by a flute cadenza. In the background, there's a traditional Pasacaglia structure, which I really have to listen to again to notice. Pasacaglia means it's like a repeating sort of chord pattern that's improvised over. This has a lovely glowing opening with the strings, some lightly struck percussion, and a harp adding some enchantment to the timbre. The flute's tones are much like in the opening movement, mostly still, with occasional runs to new notes that are then sustained. Some beautiful chiming material is heard in the orchestra as the flute's more acrobatic playing is brought back from the second movement. There's a lot of orchestral activity at this point. The active orchestral lines suddenly and appealingly quiet down at 6.30, where there's a silent pause broken by the beginning of the flute cadenza. 
It starts in its low end with hesitant lines breaking from long tones. By 8.30, the flute is accompanied by gossamer sul ponticello strings as it plays longing tones projected into the vast silent space. Rapid repeated notes begin phrases at about the 9.20 mark and the orchestra re-enters fully at 9.40. There's some bass drum in the percussion now and the piece ends on a bass drum hit and a high note on the flute that cuts off its line. <laughs> you just have like low and high at the very end and a very sudden ending. Interesting piece. The fourth track is a one-movement work called Strings to the Bone, and it's all strings, as you might imagine. It was composed in 2014 to 2015. The notes tell us it's dominated by a richly expressive and densely pulsating string texture. A long melodic line emerges in a more tranquil section. Although there is no direct reference to folk music, Fagerlund says the musical heritage of Ostrobothnia has influenced some of the musical events in this piece. This starts with a high sustained dramatic string tone. The phrase is ended by a dipping glissando. I've got this on on surround and the spacing between different sections of this string orchestra is very wide. You get a real sense of three dimensionality from the recording, at least if you're hearing it in five channel stereo. By the one minute mark, the rhythm starts chugging via quickly bowed lines. There's a rather nice pizzicato section in the second minute with some gleaming crescendo and glissandos to the violin's highest notes. Interesting tempo retard just before the third minute. Well taken and difficult to achieve. Well, I should mention, when I talk about that dimensionality, I think some of the, um, the string instruments are really so far like to the right and left that you're actually hearing them pretty clearly in the back speakers, which isn't Normal. Normally, those are more ambient to, to just give you more dimensionality. But I think the spacing, kind of the, the back micro, microphones are really picking up these instruments as well. Um, they're also in the front speakers at the same time. At 342, the music suddenly becomes more still with dramatic sustained chords and a thumping bass line that begins keeping time as it does a natural fade at 430. All we hear are gossamer light high strings and pizzicati in the mid-range. In the fifth minute, a still quiet section is in full play. We hear the occasional pizzicati quietly played in the mid-range as the rest of the orchestra plays quiet, atmospheric, slowly changing harmonies. Some of the gleaming timbres the strings produce are enchanting. This section extends all the way into the ninth minute when the pizzicati suddenly start being extended and there's a gradual change of texture and tempo nicely achieved by the ensemble. In the 10th minute, more active knotty lines are heard, and the rhythm becomes more solid until it's what's driving the music. The harmony seems stuck in the 11th minute, and the orchestra actually falls away into pianissimo dynamic as the strings begin another foray, slowly crescendoing with new lines that start spreading throughout the ensemble. The crescendo is interrupted in the 13th minute, then a quiet dynamic starts crescendoing to the end, where a resolution is finally found it's an interesting piece, well worth hearing, especially if you like string music. Tracks 5 through 7 are a chamber symphony, again composed in 2020 to 2021. And all the movements in this work are played without a break. Now what a chamber symphony means, means it's a symphony for a chamber orchestra. And a chamber orchestra means one instrument per part, so you don't have these massed violins or things like that. So it's going to be a more intimate work. Intimate sounding, just because of its single instrument on each voice. The first movement is marked da calmo misterioso, 
The notes tell us all of the work's essential elements are heard here. Uh, they return and develop in the second and third movements. And uh, so that's a little bit like uh, what we heard in the previous piece, actually. This starts out calmly with some welcome wind instruments in the lead and atmospheric strings accompanying with ethereal chords. So I guess this is a good batch for the uh, Renitsky recordings. We get mm. some solo winds here. Uh, the opening uh, evokes the uh, Calmo Misterioso marking in the score. Suddenly at 121, the rhythm starts leaping about happily and quickly evaporates to the slow atmospheric music again. It's like a little surprise, really. At 258, there's a finally a big texture change with some quick brass fanfares. After this, the strings come into the foreground, sounding less atmospheric and more thematic, despite their sustained tones. There's a rhythm being marked by the piano bass at times. Really, this has been a long crescendo. The bass drum at 410 is very present and vivid on the recording, despite being in the background. I want to kind of mention that one of the great things about classical music is the first time you're hearing a new piece of music, you can hear, say, like a long crescendo happening. You don't really realize that it's happening until midway or three quarters of the way through it. And you, you start thinking back to what you've already heard. So it's really got you sort of analyzing what you're hearing and thinking about it and sort of putting it into some kind of order, I guess, in your brain. Because you don't really know, because it happens in time, you really don't know what's coming. Anyway, there's also a clanging metallic percussion instrument marking time as it comes in and out. Uh, there's interesting scoring here, uh, which is welcome because melodically there's not really much to hold on to. Most of the musical interest comes from the timbral combinations, the uh, combinations of the different sounding instruments. There's some wind patterns at 625 with foreboding bass strings occasionally making themselves known. Uh, this sort of streaming string and wind pattern gains some light brass at the end of the movement, which build a bit of tension before segueing directly into the second movement, marked energico e brillante. Here, an isolated string line brings us into new tonal areas with new figures. The piece starts building up a sense of movement via the percussion and winds, with occasional piano bass lightly hammered out at the 48 second mark to give a sense that there's a rhythm. At 1.12, we hear a pause after another quick descending pattern, then some new, more active and complex textures, which include some very rapid trumpet fanfares at around the uh, 150 mark. Very impressive playing by the trumpet. There are some washes of sound that reach a climax at 3.18, and then we hear a new pattern of quick, continuous notes in each section of the orchestra. There's a lot of ping-ponging between the sections with this material. At 4.30, this uh, dries up via sustained bass notes. Then there's an atmospheric gong crescendo. We don't hear enough of these in music these days. What I mean is like a rolled gong that starts very quietly and oh, just right. kind of builds up. Active brass patterns emerge out of this and are answered in turn by other sections of the orchestra. At 644, the brass temporarily get the spotlight with some fanfares and hand off to strings and a powerfully ominous bass doubled by piano bass. Light wood and metal percussion adds texture in the 7th and 8th minute. This is a movement of constantly shifting textures, kaleidoscopic in nature. By the end of the movement, tension and volume has built up, and there are drums impacting the uh, ear and the body a little bit too. It's a great recording. This all suddenly stops and is a long sustained tone that brings us to the 3rd movement without a break. It's marked ex expansivo and uh, starts with a slow, almost imperceptible transformation. 
The music begins to grow gradually from inertia of the beginning towards new mutual relationships between the basic materials and the notes say like floating components that settle into a new order according to the composer. It starts quietly and softly with light bass drum hammering like distant thunder in the back along with ominous brass sounds and atmospheric opening. By the third minute, we're hearing sustained string backgrounds as in the first movement with meandering piano scale lines and occasionally commenting winds and brass. This subtly changes with some pleasant light metal percussion sprinkled in with the wind lines. The strings gain in profile. By 6.17, we're hearing all sections of the orchestra in a louder dynamic, playing similar lines as we've heard from them before. The piece unexpectedly ends on a sudden brief crescendo in the strings. So I have to say, I like this composer. I seem to zero in on the sounds his writing produces. The music isn't too challenging, but there are challenges in there, of course. Having a soloist of the caliber of Sharon Bezali in the flute concerto Terrell really brings that work over the top. Her appealing tone is eminently listenable in whatever she plays. I actually have a great recording of her playing the uh, Christopher Rouse flute concerto, a really great work that she plays exceptionally well. The rest of the works on the album are attractive too, especially if you're drawn by timbral combinations, which drive all of these works. Uh, Strings to the Bone is high in contrast, and the Chamber Symphony is highly atmospheric, with patterns and textures emerging out of the sound field and just as quickly drying up. It's music with a big atmospheric sound and excellent performances all around. It'll be a bit of a challenge for some listeners, but just enjoy the combined sounds and you'll find something new to enjoy. It's really hard to describe the nature of this music because mm. there aren't steady tempos, right. consistent melodies, or traditional harmonic changes. So it's a different kind of experience. It's the timbre. Yeah, it's all about yeah. the tone the colors. Sound. And you use this word too that shows up in my notes a lot is textures. Yeah. It's the way these colors blend and then the things that happen when they interact. And they're constantly entering and shifting in interesting ways throughout yeah. all of these works, uh, sometimes in very surprising combinations. And yeah, it's kind of music that you kind of just have to go with the flow, as they say, with it and let it take you to these different experiences of combinations of sounds. And in the flute concerto, there are more melodic elements that are mm. sort of repeated and identifiable and through the development. And so I could pick up on more of them there. And I really enjoyed that lower alto flute when it's used in different spots there in contrast mm. with the regular flutes. So that was interesting too. Yeah, it's a composer we've heard before and I kind of had the same impression with different compositions. These are pretty fresh within the last couple of years. So I'm interested in hearing more because it's a really rich tonal experience. Yeah, and as with Ranitsky, I'm sure we will hear more because it seems like Beast is really recording a lot of his uh, music. And uh, keep that coming. I'm really uh, yeah. enjoying hearing them, and especially the fantastic uh, recording quality on these SACDs. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, over to the jazz side. We've got a interesting combination of things. And well, we're going to start on the Fresh Sound New Talent label. They're from Spain, but the pianist is very fresh indeed from the UK. 22-year-old Noah Stoneman, his debut recording, the title, Anyone's Quiet, Let It Rain to You. Interesting. It's got a colon in that title. Yeah, it's got a colon after the quiet. 
This recording now, interestingly, I said 22 years old, but it was actually recorded in October of 2021, which doesn't seem to make much difference. But when you're only 22 years old, <laughs> it makes it even younger yeah. at the time of recording. He says about this album, he's from North London, by the way, uh, this record is about finding moments of solace and quiet amongst noise. Creation of the album itself was a practice of self-discipline, meditation, concentration, and trust in the long term for myself. My hope is that people can find some sense of quiet reflection or poetry in listening to it, that they embrace the ebbs and flows and trial and error of everyday life that the music speaks to. All right. Well, this is actually a really free-flowing kind of uh, recording, and it actually follows nicely after the classical we just heard. However, it's really hard to pin down structure of what's going on here on a few listens. I'll mm -hmm. get into why that is, and I'll mainly be describing what I hear going through. Maybe that's our theme for tonight, you know, kind of a... Free flow, yeah. Ethereal structures or free flow, maybe it could Something be Something in too. the ether. Ooh, that could be a good title, Something in the Ether. I'm going to write that write down. That down you yeah. Keep talking, I'm going to write that down. All right. <laughs> Along with Stoneman, who's on piano and all compositions, here we've got Will Sack on bass. He's a 26-year-old. I believe he's from New York originally. And we've got Luca Caruso on drums, 24 years old. So we've got all young musicians uh, in this trio here. We're going to start out with Thomas and Teresa. And this one starts right out with a little ringing piano riff that forms the basis for the melody. You'll hear it a lot. The syncopated piano left hand and bass line disguise the meter and make it really hard to figure out. I'm not sure much about the structure here either. After a few repeats of the first melodic riff idea section, it moves into building rhythmic chord section that ends in alternating intervals. Then we hear the sections again with Caruso whipping up the drums under the chords. It gets quiet for the start of piano improvisations over light drums and ringing bass notes. Stillman starts simply with a soft touch. There's a kind of fluid bounciness in his lines. It works up into insistent and throbbing three-beat pulses in the piano chords and bass and drum fills. Then it chills out to just rubato piano. After some cymbal splashes, the drums click and chatter under a slow four-beat piano push of rolling chords to a placid ending. Yeah, and I want to say about the title of this track, this jumped out at me. Tomas and Teresa has to be a reference to Milan Kundera's book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, because mm. those are the names of right. the two main characters. So right. there you go. And People still reading that, I guess. <laughs> you do get kind of two different personalities coming out from the beginning right. to the end of this um, track so quite interesting transformation track two borders a drum roll brings this one in stillman introduces melodic figures that have snappy alternating notes it's a bit rhythmically amorphous but sack introduces some pulsing descending bass figures below and soon it's off on a chugging 4-4 swing feel with walking bass the piano melody works around the figures we heard earlier and it seems to be 32 measures with lots of mix-ups and tom fills from caruso Stoneman's off into some flighty improvisations of smoothly running connected lines. Higher ringing chords break things up occasionally, and it builds up to more percussive ringing piano ideas. They bring it down for a more subdued run through the melody and build it up to some final percussive ringing piano chords. Track 3, Evanus. So perhaps a nod to Bill Evans. And it does start out with a three-beat 
bass ostinato that's rising, and some very impressionistic soft piano ripple sounds. Uh, it has a calm, even rhythm, lullaby-like melody. The synced bass and left-hand piano on beats one and two in spots give it a unique feel. Caruso has soft brush accents on the drums, and it seems to be a 30-measure melody, with the ending getting a few measures of the ostinato and piano ripples before they play through it again. The sock gets a deep and ringing bass solo. Stoneman follows with a solo of light, sometimes ringing lines, focusing on articulation and dynamics, and after that, they cycle around a bit on a repeated progression, and it builds a kind of dreaminess to an unresolved ending. Track four is Calm, and it starts out with solo piano and the main modal melodic riff that things are built around. There's a discernible four-beat feel to Stoneman's chords and phrasing, the drums and bass kick in with space for the riff to hang in the open, and some cool lower answering bass lines. The riff gets modulated around a bit through the melody, and things get rhythmically and harmonically free for Stoneman's solo, with drum and bass improvisations interacting. It reduces to trickles over snare tappings from Caruso, who gets a drum solo with a lot of dynamic contrast and pauses, and he gets things worked up more with Tom ideas and actually takes it right to the end of the tune all by himself. Track five, Morn Doom. <laughs> yeah, and it starts out with an ominous bass and piano bass line of repeating notes that change in odd lengths of beats. It's like seven, four, 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 three, six, three, trying to figure out when it's going to change next. Uh, a right hand piano line gets added on top of that. The bass keeps the pattern going then. Stoneman gets some ringing 16th note figures while the bass and drums get a skip to the rhythm they've developed. And then a swinging waltz beat develops briefly before things transform again with throbbing repeated bass notes into more free piano improvisation. Things change up the rhythmic feel a lot with a return of the ringing notes, throbbing sections, and into a clicky, softer waltz feel and more delicate piano improvisations. That gets worked up into a frenzy of drumming and percussive piano with diminishing ringing clusters of notes to the end. Track six is Band of Brothers, a melody with lots of shifting chords, mostly uplifting, and with a soft touch on the piano. Caruso makes light drums brush textures underneath, and the bass movement gives it a push forward. Piano melody seems to be 32 measures before Sock takes over with the bass solo. It's dark and woody, with reaching lines and pauses. Stoneman follows with a solo with more animated flowing lines, pushed on by Caruso's switch to sticks and snare subdivisions. Stoneman returns to the final section of melody we heard before, and cycles around chords while Caruso works up a snare to some final ringing piano that connects to the next track which is postlude. This is a shorter one, less than three minutes. Slow and steady rolling piano chords get joined by bass and some contrasting busy drum tom soloing and cymbals from Caruso. The piano and bass cycles continue, Caruso lightening to just cymbals to a slowed and pretty final cadence. Track eight is Strands. Furious walking bass and dancing cymbals get this one going. Stoneman adds some rhythmic figures that the others sync up with momentarily before shifting back into the rhythmic push. Stoneman's back with fluid, fast-running lines of improvisation that connect to similar rhythmic breakups of the flow. Bass and piano get into some syncopated vamping chord figures with low ringing piano while Caruso beats furiously behind to the finish with a ringing piano. And the final tune is called Major, and it's quite a pretty one. 
starting with Rubato's solo piano. Bass and drums join in with a six-beat pattern that feels like four plus two. It works up to a softly flowing ABA melody. It has a little alternating note figure that gets modulated around and sticks in your ear really quickly. Stoneman continues on with softly flowing improvisations, incorporating the melody lick nicely in his solo ideas. It comes down softly, vamping on the melody, ending chords with final soft piano licks to a rich final chord. And that wraps it up. The structures here are often hard to define, as I said, feeling somewhat amorphous, but that seems to be the environment that Stoneman best expresses his creative ideas in. There's a lot of spontaneity between the trio, and you have the impression that much of the material may be like sketches left open to what will happen in the performance. That said, he's a pianist with a lot of creative, harmonic, and melodic ideas in his solos, and with a sensitive touch and smooth lines. Sock's bass tone is rich, with solid push through the tunes and dark ringing solos, and Caruso has a lot of interesting drum textures underneath that stand out. If you like your jazz free-flowing, you'll probably enjoy this a lot, and it'll be interesting to see what the young Stoneman tries out next. I really want to emphasize how quiet this album was, uh, even when there's highly active material being played. Mm. Uh, Stoneman has a nice, soft, like cushioned attack to his sound and I've rather enjoyed that about it it doesn't mm. wear the listener out at all um, he also has uh, very pretty chord voicings the compositions have interesting chord changes and li like you said lots of rhythm changes so the whole thing kept me alert and interested and I said at the end because it's so quiet it's probably best for late night listening but I don't know I think maybe those rhythm changes <laughs> might uh, yeah. you know, keep your brain working or something mm. the recording is well balanced and everyone seems a bit recessed and I think they want that on this recording because they wanted the quiet sound for me the sound is not as present as I'd like right I noticed because yeah. yeah there's no impact to it you don't really kind of you know but it's still appealing and you can easily hear everything so there's no issue there though the music occasionally veers off into some angular anxious feeling material the sound is always soft and polite even the drum solo <laughs> it doesn't really <laughs> yeah. want to disturb you so it's it's a fairly quiet album. And I also wanted to mention like that piece, uh, Thomas and Teresa. You mentioned this was recorded. I didn't know this when I listened to it, but this was recorded in 2021. And as we know, Milan Kundera, you know, died this year. So it's just kind of, mm. yeah, I, I wonder why he called the piece that is like unbearable lights of being where these two characters appear, like a book or a movie that he really likes or something like that. Because then now it just becomes more poignant just because right. uh, Kundera died just recently. Mm. So just a thought. Uh, maybe he'll write to us and yeah. let us know. We'll find out, maybe. <laughs> I assume that's what he's talking about, because that leapt out at me. I hope it's right. those characters anyway. Anyway, interesting flowing and free music from a young musician. So check this one out. For the next recording, well, we're going to uh, revisit something we've uh, listened to a bit, and that's the music of Greg Hill. And this is by a group called the Techno Cats. And the title is Technicats, the music of Greg Hill. It's on Cold Plunge Records. And we've got some interesting instrumentation and a lot to talk about here. Now, Greg Hill's music, we've reviewed two previous recordings. Episode 91, Low String Theory. That was Rodney Whitaker and Origin, Oasis, the music of Greg Hill. And then we did Michael Deese's recording also on Origin, The Other Shoe, the music of Greg Hill. That was episode 110, Baroque and Bass. Here, this recording is centered around Detroit. 
in Michigan, so where Greg Hill hails from. And we've got some really great players here. I guess the common point is the Jazz Studies program at Michigan State University. So all of the Technocats have this connection. We've got guitarist Nathan Borton, trombonist Chris Glassman that lead the group, I should say bass trombone here, which makes it really interesting. Yeah. And the great pianist Xavier Davis, uh, who's on the MSU faculty as professor of jazz. And we've got Michael J. Reed on drums and Javier Enrique on bass. Greg Hill, the composer, co-produced the album with Chris Glassman and Nathan Borton. And it's mastered by Jim Alfredson, the other ah, yeah. uh, great musician we heard recently from. Yeah, the, that organ recording. Yeah, yeah, from this yeah. Uh, region as well. A uh, great yeah. organist. And yeah, this album sounds really good too. Yeah. I just want to say that I knew I was going to like this as soon as I saw the goofy retro album cover <laughs> with the cutout heads of the band. I mean, I kind of you almost kind of know what the record's going to sound like when you see right. that, and it kind of does. Yeah, it's kind of more of a a fun approach, yeah, let's say. Fun yeah. approach, and yeah, I was intrigued when I saw Xavier Davis's name. Actually, if you look on our Facebook page, you can see a picture of the back of Xavier Davis that I took <laughs> when I met him uh, about twenty years ago in at the long gone blue note in Osaka. Um, Why did you ask him to turn around? <laughs> well, well, this is what happened. I'll just have to get this little story in. I was down there with Mrs. Russ and our friend Nathan to see uh. Freddie Hubbard and the new composer's octet of which uh, Xavier Davis was a member. There's Steve Davis on trombone and uh, a lot of other great composing musicians in there as well. Anyway, it was a slow Tuesday night and, you know, usually in Japan, they'll get you in for one show and if you're in the early show you get kicked out <laughs> so they can get the the next show in. and sometimes the sets are kind of short you know 80 minutes or so anyway i went to the early show and there weren't a lot of people apparently showing up for the later show so the manager asked me if we wanted to stay for the second set you know no charge so Russ, like, of course <laughs> so we actually got a seat there was one table on the stage behind the piano so I was sitting right behind Xavier Davis there. And in the break between the two parts of the program, all the all the other customers left and I was there alone. So I got to meet Freddie Hubbard and had a nice little conversation with Xavier Davis too. And he was a really nice guy. So that was a... That's really cool. Yeah, it was a really <laughs> interesting thing that probably only happened in, in Japan like that. Right. Just kind of lucky. I've I've had weird things like that with classical music too, where you just yeah. kind of, just because you're you're not a Japanese person, you can just walk backstage and like, talk to the musicians. Right. They just don't stop you, you know. Anyway, this uh, recording has got a lot of really cool compositions that we haven't heard yet from Greg Hill. So let's jump right in on track one. Come on down, and this is arranged by Javier Enrique. A fun start with an eight-measure swinging intro of rising bluesy piano chord figures and fills from Davis. The vamp keeps going with four-measure melodic exchanges between trombone and guitar. Then we get a fun A-A-B-A -A -A melody with stop time rhythm section and bone blasts for unison bass and guitar lines on the A section and trombone taking the B section. Enrique gets the first solo on bouncy bass and then Borton on guitar. The solos stick to a 12-bar blues form back to the AABA melody for another round, and then some more trombone and guitar exchanges like after the intro. Then they merge together and keep playing to the end. And check out the low bass trombone riff that Glassman digs into and the little high cry that he has mixed in there as well. 
track two, mm. Eldon's Bop. This is arranged by Seth Ebersole. A Latin beat in the drums and a 16-bar intro, alternation between two suspended chords for four measures each in the piano and bass. Things switch up to swing over a walking bass for a 20-measure unison boppy melody from the trombone and guitar. Borton takes a short guitar solo over the 16-measure alternating chord idea from the intro, and then Glassman is up for a long solo over the melody pattern and the alternating chords for multiple rounds. He's got good flexibility and range on that big bass trombone with exciting lines that keep pushing forward. And Davis is up on piano next with long connected melodic lines broken up by fun rhythmic ideas. The tickets through the boppy melody again. And then Davis chimes out on the alternating chords over the bass while Reed gets to bang out on the drums for a bit. And trombone and guitar join in on rhythmic riffs to push it to the end. Track three, go figure, exclamation point. This one's arranged by Nathan Borton. A cool intro with little guitar riffs that lead to syncopated figures with trombone into drum fills, and then it locks into a clicky R&B groove. The melody's built on cool little riffs started by guitar and joined by the trombone. The guitar moves up high and things get a lot of rhythmic variation and a cool break. Seems to be a 31 measure pattern and then they go around it again. Then there's a playful eight measure bridge of rising syncopated trombone and guitar lines. Borton gets a guitar solo over the funky groove with a nice warm tone. His fluid bluesy lines have interesting hesitated phrases and get some very cool double stopping and outside ventures. Davis is next on piano with a rhythmic and funky solo and trombone and guitar add some backing figures. Davis works it up to some percussive chords, trills and other exciting stuff. You can hear voices of enjoyment in the background of the recording and then they're back to another round of the melody with fat bass trombone notes from the start. It ends up on the bridge section with some final guitar doodles. This is a really fun tune. Track four, I Want to Live arranged by Chris Glassman. A solo piano opening from Davis with ringing descending chords, rising ripples of lines, and tasty rubato phrases with ringing repeated notes. It's a brief pause that leads to an eight-measure intro of choppy piano chords and bass over swinging cymbals and a two-measure break for a guitar lead into the 16-measure minor melody. It's got a 60s blue note atmosphere kind of thing to it with simple emphatic repeating descending figures. They go around it again with Glassman joining in on trombone. He continues on with the first solo with great relaxed phrasing and a huge tone getting into speedier slide work. And Davis picks up on his final choppy descending line idea, but his line is going up instead. And Reed is right there with the drum accents to hit it. Davis makes this one really swing and chime out with cool rhythmic chords. Next is a short eight measure section of trombone and guitar melody into a bass solo from Enrique that really digs in. Once more through the melody with some repeats of the final measures and final tasty ripples from Davis's piano. Track five is called Inside Straight. It's arranged by Michael Reed. It's a straight Latin beat feel with an eight measure intro from the trio and ringing syncopated piano chords. The melody is interesting with the first eight measure section of guitar figures and simpler two note trombone ideas over the intro progression. Then there's another 12 measures with more playful trombone lines and some Latin-y chiming high piano notes, and then a little break for repetitive guitar riff to ring out. 
Borton continues on with a guitar solo with fluid lines and clearly articulated rhythmic figures. There's a four-measure section from the trombone and guitar melody part that is a transition to some speedy and adventurous solo trading from Davis's piano and Glassman's trombone, who finishes up with some low riffs into the melody section transition. Davis keeps the chords going. It gets joined by Enrique's bass to vamp around for a thundering drum solo from Reed, and they close it out with another run through the melody. Track six is called Louisiana. It's written for Greg's wife, Lois, and arranged by Nathan Borton. This one has a medium, slow, relaxed swing feel. There's a 12-measure intro of nicely arranged trombone and guitar parts that move together and around each other with little drum fills. The gentle melody has an interesting structure, first an AABA form with guitar on the first section and guitar and trombone on the repeat. On the B section, trombone, guitar, and then piano all get two measures each before coming together for the last two measures together. Guitar and trombone take the final A section, and then there's a six-measure section that's like half of the intro to the tune with a two-measure break for the guitar to get into a solo. Borden has relaxed melodic phrases with a few speedy double-time ideas. Another six-measure transition section leads to a piano solo from Davis with tasty high register lines and playful swinging figures. They take it through the melody sections again, and one final six-measure section finishes it up. Track seven, Never Forget. This is arranged by Chris Glassman, originally written for the tragedy of 9-11, the notes say. Enrique starts it out on solo bass with ringing double stops, bends, harmonics, and moving lines climbing higher for a minute or so before getting a bouncy 6-8 bass line going. That gets joined by the others with syncopated guitar and trombone lines and ringing piano. Borton takes the melancholy melody on guitar first, Uh, That has sections of interjecting syncopated trombone and left-hand piano figures. There's a contrasting dreamy section of mournful trombone, too. And all of the section lengths of the melody are a little different in length. It's like six, seven, six, eight, and then six measures. So it keeps you really anticipating what's coming next. You don't get settled into a pattern. Davis is first with the piano solo, starting with some plain and serious-sounding intervals into some really ringing ideas with percussive chords and strong left-hand chord push. Glassman gets a trombone solo with longing smooth lines into busier figures and fast triplet ideas, and they go back to the start from after the bass intro through the melody sections, and it ends with some final trombone notes and piano runs. Track 8, Ristra, Ristra two exclamation points in that, uh, arranged by Chris Glassman. It's a straight Latin beat with rim clicks. There's a 24-measure melody with the first section of simple descending trombone licks. Guitar joins in next for a nice interplay. And the final section, they join up for syncopated lines together with drum accents and fills. They go around the melody section again before Borton gets a tasty guitar solo. Glassman follows with a trombone solo, and then they have a new eight-measure section of shorter, playful, synced-up, syncopated figures as a transition to a solo from Davis, working ringing notes in the high register, and then a long ascending triplet line. Once more through the melody, wraps this one up. And track nine, Sunny Days. That's D-A-Z-E. Uh, It starts out with lazy rubato guitar lines and rippling piano into chords below from Borton and Davis. It's dreamy. 
reads a cymbal's dance-in, and then the focus shifts to his solo drums working around the kit with thundering tom work. He works into a steady beat, and everyone joins back in with a minor modal melody with long unison pickup phrases on guitar and trombone. It's a 24-measure AAB structure with the trombone and guitar splitting up for the B section and a shift to a chugging swing over walking bass. Borton and Glassman trade inspired solo phrases, first eight measure sections, then four bars, and Davis follows on piano, starting out playful with two-note rhythmic ideas into more complex rhythmic ideas and intense lines, really pushing the harmonies for an exciting solo. Another run through the melody with some cool low bass trombone blasts at the end to finish it up. And track 10, the final track, Thank You Notes. This one's arranged by Chris Glassman. And it finishes the recording with a ballad. A soft cymbal roll brings in Glassman with a warm and fluffy sound. The melody is kind of an ABA structure with trombone and guitar trading off four measure phrases in each section. The A part has simple, relaxing, descending lines, and the B section gets Glassman really soaring with a longing tone. In the final A part, they play together. And then there's a final kind of two measure tag to the melody. Davis has pretty piano chords and touches under it all, and Glassman gets a wonderfully phrased solo with huge tone and some lines starting way down low in the range of the bass trombone. They finish it up all together on the final A section with the two measure ending. And that's it. A great recording that I enjoyed a lot. I really liked Hill's compositions. They have strong, familiar sounding melodies and interesting structures with little twists that make them fun and unique to figure out. The arrangements here are well done, making the most of this unique combination of bass, trombone, and guitar, sharing the melodies and having a lot of interplay. Uh, inspired and creative solos all around from Glassman, Borton, and Davis, and Reed and Enrique make a solid rhythmic unit and also have nice solo spots too. Don't let this slip under your jazz radar because definitely want to hear this recording of Hill's music and these fine musicians. Yeah, nothing not to like here. <laughs> Sunny and upbeat compositions and performances. Um, Hill's compositions can be complex, but they always have a groove built in, mm. and that's really what drew me to this album. I particularly on this album enjoyed the piano soloing. A lot of ideas seem to come in spontaneously. That always draws my ear. I feel like he was really right in the moment, and he had yeah. a lot of good ideas on the piano. Really, the soloists all had their own unique personalities when in the spotlight. And with the overall swinging feel of the album, I was left in high spirits. Good stuff. Yeah. I'm always excited to hear some more of Greg Hill's compositions. Yeah, there seems and, to be a uh, lot of stuff coming out, too. Yeah. We had, um, you know, like you said, there were three that we heard. There's even more, if you look on that website, that... Uh, where I looked yeah. up this album. I was like, wow, there's a lot of... On Greg Kill's website, there are a lot of albums of his music out now. Right. And this is yeah. a Cold Plunge Records. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> I think I that's know. his label, because he, he's, I think it, it it goes to his name, so right. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know it's if it's going to be title, though. easy to find uh, this on CD in Japan here. <laughs> it might be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I think you have to get it from his website. They have oh, okay. Um, they have it there. I saw it available. You know what a cold plunge is now. Yeah, like yeah, Now it's yeah. become a thing where people just kind of plunge into an ice-cold uh, tub of water, and uh, I guess because they're insane. I don't know. <laughs> it probably makes you stronger if it doesn't stop your heart, right? So, well, that's the thing. I think it would stop yeah. my heart. I've always been really <laughs> sensitive to cold water. I wouldn't do that. Because right. even when I was in the pool, I would always get in really 
slowly because I don't no like the polar bear club change. for you then. Huh? Yeah, no polar bear club. <laughs> I'm not going to be a member of the polar bear club. Don't invite right. me to your polar bear club. All right. For our final selection tonight, we're going to go to organist Gregory Lewis and his new release, Organ Monk Going Home on Sunnyside Records. came out August 4th. So this is third in a series of his Monk recordings. So Lewis discovered Monk's work through his father's record collection. Then he was inspired to attempt learning it on the piano. But then he heard organist Larry Young perform a version of Monk's Dream. And then he knew he wanted to focus on interpreting Monk's music on the organ. Well, the title here, Going Home, Home is connecting with his uh, African roots. And while he was performing a concert of Monk material, at a Brooklyn Jazz Club, he was approached by the official photographer of Zimbabwe's former president, Robert Mugabe, <laughs> he became friends oh, wow. with and uh, invited him to uh, United Nations functions and to visit Zimbabwe, which he did after wow. the COVID pandemic. And that's why if you look on the album cover, you see those are not elephants at the zoo. That must be from his uh, I African was wondering trip, so. about that cover. Yeah. I was like, well, that's a really, uh, <laughs> what, are, what are the elephants doing there? Right. But there you go. Now, previous recordings, if you want to check them out, the first one, Organ Monk, The Breathe Suite, 2017, and then Organ Monk, Blue, 2019. So this is the third one you said, the third right? one, right. Okay. I got to get the other two now. That's going to be crazy. <laughs> so we got Gregory Lewis on too organ. Too much money. <laughs> Kevin McNeil on guitar and Nashit Waits on drums. And mostly Monk tunes, except for one original here. And I'll give you a little bit of history uh, so you can look these up if you want to compare with Monk's original recordings. Track one is Who Knows, which was recorded in 1947 and then released on 1952's The Genius of Modern Music, Volume 1. And it's a difficult melody like a lot of Monk's tunes. Uh, it's kind of a 32-bar AABA. Now, if you know the original tune, it starts with this crazy descending line in the intro. Well, here, Lewis starts out with a vamp on that line, working with McNeil before working into the melody. And I like the way he phrases this difficult melody with really zippy lines on the organ. It's kind of interesting. Uh, things are driving with light and clear cymbals and pumping bass as Lewis gets into his solo. He mixes up speedy lines with repeated simpler figures, more rhythmic things, and some sustained chords. And then he gets the speaker whirling too. Uh, this is really exciting stuff. Uh, McNeil solos next. He's got a clean tone with clear articulation, getting speedy lines and punchy double stops. Back to Lewis for another zip through the melody, and they vamp on the descending intro line together, and then McNeil uh, keeps it going for some more improvisations on top from Lewis that build into some cool sustain and moving lines before coming back to the figure with weights beating it out on the drums to the end. Track two, Evidence. Uh, this one's got kind of an interesting history. It's a contrafact so built on the same progressions as a, a tune called Just You, Just Me. And the title was kind of corrupted from Just You, Just Me to Just Us, <laughs> which became Justice, and then finally <laughs> Evidence. So it was uh, <laughs> recorded uh 1948, actually for uh, the Wizard of the Vibes sessions with Milt Jackson. And then you can find other versions of it on Piano Solo and also uh, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers with Thelonious Monk. 
Well, this one, the quirky syncopated intro of the original gets an interesting organ lead up here. And then they're all locked in together on the syncopated hits tightly. McNeil gets the boppy playing going where Milt Jackson was originally on vibes on that tune. And it really swings along at a fast tempo. And then Lewis gets into soloing with snappy lines. Uh, He starts it out with rhythmic staccato ideas accented nicely by weights and gets a little quote of camp down races yeah i caught that too on the way (laughs) building some fun melodic phrases in his choppy solo weights gets an extended drum solo here with a lot of space around the toms uh, for something of this tempo and which he builds a lot of ideas around the others return with the quirky melody to a tense chord but a bright final resolution so fun ending Track three is San Francisco Holiday. It's a 32-bar AABA tune that Monk composed on New Year's Eve 1959. The tune was originally called Classified Information. Then he retitled it as Worry Later uh, when he recorded it for the first time in 1960. And then when it appeared, that that was for uh, Thelonious Monk at the Blackhawk. When it was on the album Monk in Italy, it appeared appeared as San Francisco Holiday, because I guess he had been uh, staying in San Francisco for a while with his family. Now, this one gets a rubato swelling organ intro here, and it works through the melody with a kind of calypso feel, I felt. Then McNeil adds cool harmonized lines to the melody. Things get off swinging for Lucis solo then, and then it has a lot of playful rhythmic interaction with McNeil and Waits. He gets some extended notes back into the choppy descending melody line for a transition section to a guitar solo from McNeil. It's got a lot of cool rising line ideas. And once more through the melody to a soft fade out over the toms. Track four, Brilliant Corners. I think even kind of casual jazz Fans may be aware of this famous album and tune. Uh, it's kind of famously difficult 22 measure song. It's got this ABA form, eight bars, seven bars, and seven bars. Uh, and then it's first played slowly and then goes to double time <laughs> throughout the melody. And apparently in the uh, recording session for this was 1956. This is the one with, uh, you know, Sonny Rollins and uh, Clark Terry. They, they they had like 25 takes of the tune that were all not successful. So the final version was stitched together, spliced from all those different parts. Anyway, uh, here uh, they give this kind of famous opening a relaxed and legato unison guitar and organ treatment. Waits fills the spaces with tasty drum fills and Lewis has a really tasty organ chatter thing on the last fill of that gap. Then things get swinging as the melody speeds up to that double time and pull back again to a great groove over walking organ bass for Lewis's solo. Uh, They upshift the tempo and then pull it back, just like in the original, for some shimmering sustained organ chords in here too. McNeil has a sparse and tasty rhythm guitar going underneath and he gets his own solo too sounding rich and rounded and swinging tightly on the speedier sections with some trills and bluesy tastes thrown in there as well they take it through that tricky melody once more to finish it out track five's gallops gallop and it's got a really difficult melody to it as well now first recorded by the alto saxophonist gigi grice with monk as a sideman 1955 for Grice's album Nika's Tempo. It also appears on uh, live at the club recording. So they come right in on the difficult melody phrases, guitar and organ working it in unison. 
nice fills from weights on the drums. It's got a great chugging swing feel to it for McNeil's guitar solo that starts out really fluid, but picks up some monkish phrasing as it goes on. And Lewis has a lot of sunny and bouncy melodic ideas in his organ solo here, adding some long sustained notes on the way. It gets choppy with kicks from weights towards the end, and McNeil's back for another trip uh, through the tune together. Track six, two-timer, was never actually recorded by Monk, but first recorded by Jackie McLean uh, for his album Fickle Sonance. And under the title, Five Will Get You Ten. And there's a long story for this tune. It was actually first credited to Sonny Clark. Anyway, Waits gets this one going with a solo funky drum beat. Uh, the Jackie McLean version has sustained sax lines on the A section of the melody, but here they give it a more choppy treatment to match this funky beat. Lewis keeps the idea of going for his solo with a clean percussive attacked tone for his lines. He gets back to some melody sections that make a transition to McNeil's guitar solo, who snaps short phrases nicely to the groove, building anticipation with spaces in this solo. Another funky melody run and a long held out bass note that goes on to the end of it. Track 7, Breaks Sake. This was uh, only ever recorded twice with different forms for each versions. Uh, it's also on that Geeky Grice album I mentioned before from 1955. And the second one is on It's Monk's Time from 1964. Well, this one gets a funky drum beat intro as well uh, with choppy unison melody lines on guitar and organ with weights mixing things up on the drums very nicely underneath. There's a lot of rhythmic interaction going on between the three during Lewis's solo, and it gets some almost clavinet-like effects mm. with the clipped notes that he plays here. McNeil's solo has a lot of fun bite too, but finishes with tasty fluid phrases. They go once more through the melody with some vamping on the final A section, extended to an ending and a fade out. Fade out. Yeah, fade out. <laughs> Mike's <laughs> dreaded fade out. I guess, I guess in this case it was yeah, acceptable though. Okay. And track eight is a Lewis original, a rather contrasting kind of piece, but kind of cool, Jacqueline's Eyes. And this is a very atmospheric kind of ballad start, uh, low pulsing organ bass with rubato chords, gradually fade in with McNeil etching out some really more affected reverby guitar here. Waits beats out a wash of drum toms and cymbals, and then a steady rocky beat forms just before halfway, as McNeil's guitar takes more of a central presence to what's going on. It comes down quietly, and then it works back to the mysterious feel over drum fills, swelling organ, before it ends with soft, repeated guitar notes, kind of like the stopping of rain. Hmm. So, organ monk? Yeah, why not? I mean, Lewis has found a way to meld the unique quirkiness of Monk's compositions together with all the cool sounds and techniques that we love about the organ. And if you know Monk's music, you'll be intrigued at the twists and updated beats that some of the tunes get here, thanks to Waite's great drumming. Lewis's solos are interesting and unpredictable, with lots of different articulations and sustains, also getting the charm of the organ speakers spinning, nice popping bass lines underneath as well. McNeil's guitar matches up on the melodies together uh, with inspired solos of good melodic ideas and a variety of phrasing in his guitar playing. There's a lot of good energy pumping out of this recording. Yeah, another way to describe it is Funky Monk. <laughs> funky because, Monk, yeah. Yeah, because I, I guess Monk is always funky, but they really draw that out here. I, I think of him as quirky all the time, and of yeah. course, these are quirky tunes too. Man, they sound really 
hard to play. They're a little weird. And I just love that about Monk. Mm. It gradually dawned on me as I was listening to this album that how hot this rhythm is between these players. I mean, right. they they really got some great grooves going. Yeah. Um, smoking grooves, really. They're always lively. They got some seriously funky grooves, especially on two-timer and break's sake at the end, yeah. both of which the drums shine along with the organ and guitar. It's an easy and fun album to listen to, especially if you like Monk's music, which I do. So I like the organ and guitar approach a lot. It's a different sound, and they get it to work well in this music. I really like this a lot. And of course, I want to hear the other two now. <laughs> I'm, kind of <laughs> thinking, I'm just watching my, my the money in my bank disappear as I'm thinking of buying these albums. But um, uh, there are going to be more of these, I would guess, too. I think uh, Monk's music, if, you, if he was to record all of the uh, Monk's composition, would take up at least seven CDs. Probably so I think th there might be more, seven or eight CDs, I'm not sure. There's, yeah. uh, I have a list of all of his compositions somewhere that I've got right. saved. And um, like I said, there's really interesting histories with yeah. different versions and, right. and different titles. And yeah, so it's quite a um, a big catalog of things that he could go through and yeah, do a lot of different twists on. So yeah, it'd be interesting. Right. It's an interesting specialty to focus on, especially with organ. Yeah, it's there. I mean, you know, it's it's great, really unique music in the yeah. world of jazz as well. You know, even though Monk's music is um, quirky and unique, you can do a lot of things with it. And mm -hmm. uh, so we're always hearing people, you know, recorded or putting twists, you know, like we really enjoyed uh, Conrad Herwig's, you know, Latin yeah. Latin version of Monk music too. So, right. Yeah, you know, I think it's just becomes universal and open to a lot of interpretations. All right, that wraps up the uh, jazz program. And this episode looks like we're going to be right around the two-hour mark uh, as usual. So, yeah, right. we'll get through things. Uh, that's, that's pretty good. That's kind of what we're aiming for. Right. What were we talking about on those three-hour episodes? Did we actually, <laughs> like, ad lib on that? I don't remember. I don't know. Maybe we were just, maybe we were just slurring all the way through. Could be. <laughs> Could <laughs> Our be. words after drinking too much. I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, this has been episode 127 of Adult Music, and we'll be back next week with 128. We've got our program already figured out. Yeah. Uh, what do we got in classical music coming up, Mike? Oh, what do we have in classical music? Let's see. We got uh, harpsichord music uh, from Italy. Some of All my right. favorite in the world, but the early Baroque harpsichord. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about this because I just want to give listeners something to pay attention to when they listen to this album by uh, Francesco Corti because I think this music is really special and um, it's not special in the sense that it's like, you know, beautiful melodies or any of that. It's kind of intellectual for Baroque music, but mm. um, we'll talk about that. We've got some Ravel oh, um, and nice. I want to mention something about this Ravel album we're doing next week. It's um, Quator Vos, the French, or Voce, Vos, mm. I don't know how they'd say it, but um, at Poétique de l'Instant 2. Now we did uh, the first one uh, in this series, Poétique de l'Instant, which had Debussy's music with Balmer. And this one has um, Ravel on it, the string quartet. And it, the album also includes Ravel's introduction in Allegro um, for flute, clarinet, harp, and string quartet. All right, okay. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. And when we were talking about doing the uh, episode with the same difference guys, like mm. one of the things they do on their podcast, they, they often complain about the use of the harp in a jazz orchestra like on very old recordings <laughs> right and i get it i mean it's kind of cheesy it reminds me of those old um kind of you know mantovani recordings oh, right. with the strings and stuff but um don't dismiss the harp because the harp is an absolutely beautiful instrument and it's at its best in this introduction and allegro piece that i really wanted them to hear but i programmed something else for that uh 
that right, podcast right. because I wasn't aware of this recording. <laughs> now it's um, out. And I'm like, oh, well, we'll just do it next week. I right. thought it would be fun to kind of talk about the harp with them. But uh, so there's that. And then we have uh, the deceased composer, um, recently deceased, uh, Kaya Sadiaho. I thought uh, Beast just put out a recent record of her choral music, and I thought we'd give a listen to that and just remember this uh, great Finnish slash French composer. She's Finnish by nationality, but she spent most of her life in Paris, and uh, the uh, Finnish consider her to be French. And the funny thing is the French consider her to be Finnish, so we have to give her some love. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she deserves right. it. She was a great composer. All right. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. On the jazz side, we've got one of the two new Joe Alterman recordings <laughs> uh, in the piano category. He's got a solo recording out. It's got a lot of, uh, actually a mix of things, but some poppy things. But he's got a trio recording with the music of Les McCann, and that's just really swinging. And so that's going to put us in a good mood. I've got another organ recording, organ with Barry Sachs. So how could I resist that? And then we're going to have a vocal recording, too. Uh, you know, I don't cool. do vocals a lot. So yeah, it'd be a uh, good we summer episode. We're going to do more episode. vocals in jazz, I think. I like jazz vocals. I'm picky, but I yeah. like this one. So Yeah, I, I know how you're picky. You want to, <laughs> there's a specific thing you're looking for in yeah. jazz vocals. I know that. So if you want to find out what uh, those recordings are, they'll all be put up together on our Deezer playlist. I also want to say, by the way, about the Ravel album there. I mentioned like the Montavani strings from the 1950s. And ironically, there is a composer by the name of Montavani on this album, but it's not the same oh, guy. Okay. <laughs> it's a contemporary composer whose music we've heard on this podcast before. So okay. he's um, the contemporary composer on that album. So. Right. All right, so if you want to find out what all those recordings are, you want to get listening early, they'll all be together on our Deezer playlist. It'll come out not too long after this episode. You can find it on Deezer. There'll be a link to it on our Facebook page as well. And thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And remember, check out the guys over at Same Difference Podcast. I'll have a link to their program in our description. And their little promo will be coming up when we close off on this episode so stick around to hear that and if we survive the approaching typhoon we'll be back again talking about that music in episode 128 next week so looking forward to that mike and if we don't make it don't worry about us all our problems are solved (laughs) (laughs) yeah music will be the last the least of our problems so well it's not a that's never a problem the problem is everything else (laughs) yeah All right, so keep listening, and we'll see you again next week. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.